everyone to another episode of Real Talk with Bella. I am joined by our publisher, Jennifer Vasilis, and the incredible uh, Cheryl Hunter. Um, Cheryl Hunter is a best-selling author, speaker, trainer, coach, and has an incredible story to share with us today. Um, and really, really fitting to what um, we just launched at Bella with the Be Human campaign. campaign. Um, but I'm going to tell you, let uh, Cheryl jump in and share a little bit about her journey to get to where she is today. Thanks so much for joining us, Cheryl. Welcome. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your campaign as well. Um, I, uh, I, I didn't start out wanting to be a speaker. I mean, like many people I started, ha had a very circuitous route to where I ended up. I, you know, I think that's not unusual. I don't think that most people's trajectory in life goes in a very straight linear fashion, but I am a cowgirl from Colorado and I grew up in such a remote area of the Rockies where it was, there was just no signs of civilization. It could have been the 1800s. It could have been the 1500s. It could have been, you know, the 1980s. It, it all looked the same. And say, it was, what's that? Iowa. I was going to say like, you're describing Iowa. My husband's from Iowa. It sounds very similar, but okay, keep going. <laughs> oh, I don't know. But I mean, I'm talking about no buildings, no signs of civilization, no, nothing but the wilderness, you yeah. know, and, uh, from that perspective, it uh, I haven't spent much time in Iowa. They're probably like, oh it's no, all, we're far. All fields, a lot of farm, and maybe like a house here and there. And that's oh, see houses though. There's a the thing like there was, but like one or two, you know, like no, it's not a lot. <laughs> civilization here, and as a as a little kid, it was like, say it again. No, I said say that one more time. I didn't hear what you said. One house, you know. At, every 10 miles like it's it was pretty very, oh wow yeah, it's very remote <laughs> gotcha yeah and it, so yeah very remote um i used to lie in the in the meadows you know in the in the cow pasture <laughs> on my back cows are very docile they'll leave you alone um and, you know maybe come by and sniff once in a while but i'd lie in the meadow looking up at the sky and seeing planes fly by and i would think Oh man, I you know I want to be somebody on one of those planes one day, looking down at the at the girl laying in the in the meadow, and and I'm going somewhere. And so as I got to be a teenager, I just thought I got to get out of here. And I talked my friend into going with me, and we got year rail passes. And I had taken a day off school, played hooky, and it <laughs> was like. Took a, took my mini bike down to the nearest town with a store and got a got some magazines and stuff. It was like, what am I going to do with my life? How am I going to get the heck out of here? And one of them talked about it was glamour. It was talking talking about how they always needed models. And I thought, well, I'm tall enough. I was on the boys' basketball team at the time, which is probably more a function of being in a really small town <laughs> than anything else. But I thought I could do this because if I did, not that I had any great designs on modeling, but if I did that, I'd be able to stay because there's none of that goes on here. So I'd have this ironclad reason why they'd let me go. My parents would just have to acquiesce. Mm -hmm. So let's do it. And we got there and, and no sooner did we get to France than there was literally a man with a camera around his neck. And he walked up and said, are you a model? I can make you one. Wow. And yeah, that was kind of the beginning of it all. Now my friend was like, like most people <laughs> with some thought would be like, heck no. But, but she wanted to go back home afterward. I didn't. It was incumbent upon me. I, I you know, had decided that I've got to figure out a way to stay. Once we get over there, I got to figure out a way to stay in the city, some city, any city, forever. And so here's the thing that presented itself to me. I'll do this. Maybe it's not the smartest idea, but I'm, I'm smart. I'm tough. You don't grow up on a horse ranch without some grit. Yeah. And I was like, I'll figure it out. Yeah. 
they weren't photographers obviously it doesn't take a whole lot of guessing <laughs> to figure that out they were criminals how old were you when this happened i was 18. you were 18. so i um when i did my research a little bit about you and read up um it was and and the excitement to talk to you i mean it's obviously a, an unfortunate unfortunate circumstances you know how you got to be where you are today in a sense but i too am a survivor of sexual assault i was five years old when it happened to me and it wasn't until i was about 12 13 where i began to like really grasp what had happened to me that it it um took my life into a different path and i'm not saying that it was the most positive during that time because i was trying to process what had happened, remember, it was traumatic, your body, as I, under, I, as I eventually learned, has the ability to shut up trauma for years, and I never spoke about it to anyone for many, you know, for a very long time. I don't know if that's something that happened to you. However, something that is constant in your message is the word resilience. And I personally have been called resilient um, ever since I was a little, you know, I could, as far back as I could remember. And I am especially, um, you know, encouraged to share stories like yours, like mine, because so many women, so many men, so many people, period, have gone through something not as dire, not as severe, not as violent. However, in some way, shape or form, they have been assaulted in a way where their innocence has been taken away, where their um, sense of identity has been taken away. And what I know to be true for myself is that the more we hear other people overcome, right? Uh, more stories of overcoming, um, because I didn't have a lot of that. Like it took me years to begin to he hear from other survivors um, that had gone through something similar that allowed me to heal. Um, what is your, um, you were 18, so you were an adult to a certain extent, you, I mean, to me, 18, you're still a kid. Um, you know, you, you think you know it all, but you really don't. Um, what did you do in that moment when you, when you realized what was happening? What, what did you do? Well, first of all, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Um, the numbers are alarming on how many people this happens to, and yet it's a very personal phenomenon. And and I'm sorry you dealt with that. Thank you. It does. It changes a trajectory forever. And while the dissociative response is, is strong and it keeps us alive, yeah. there's a 180 degree difference between alive and aliveness. Yeah. And it's uh, for a very long time, I, well, I could see that I was alive but dead. Yeah. I, and I know what that feels like. Yes. <laughs> and I think that's a common, common occurrence for people who've survived anything. Um, as is the, as is the response to shut down and pretend it didn't happen, which is exactly what I did. So, you know, I won't go into all the gory details, but they tortured me. They, they, you know, you could, anything you could imagine. It was, you know, me and multiple men, you could kind of figure that out. But eventually they left me for dead and then the real challenge began in that in the moment when i was captive and the time when i was captive that period of time it was just survive survive get out get out you're in such shock the body just takes over there's no the mind takes over you dissociate but then afterward when life is seemingly normal again, which is never again. Fun the survivor in whatever context to figure out what to do. And and I I, I was a child. Yeah. I think teenager, you you're a child. The brain doesn't stop developing until twenty five, twenty six. So <laughs> we're still children. Sure. It's nothing like being five, but let's, let's, you know, it, it's, you know, it's a, a very well, subjective I, experience. You can, you, I mean, it isn't, I, I, I don't think it's fair to compare. I mean, ages, right. I think that the trauma, the level of trauma, um, is different. Um, the experiences are very different. Um, and you know, it is trauma 
all in its, you know, it's trauma period. And we just have, you know, better or not capabilities of handling it after the fact, because the, the reality, it's, it's not to say that anyone, um, is minimizing what happened has happened right uh what i think is very uh important to highlight is the coping skills because um what i know to be true just like you i mean when you describe you know alive but dead i completely understand what that feels like because for many years i literally like i could play that tape in my head where i was just living right living um and and praying but literally praying to not wake up the next day it was kind of like you know it it was it was praying not to wake up the night and then when i would wake up i you know after several months of that i'm like okay so i'm clearly here for a reason what is it because um living like this certainly isn't it so um can you talk a little bit uh about um, because obviously you've managed to turn your life around astronomically and you're utilizing what happened to you, um, for good and for the service of others and, and, and people who have gone through similar or different, you know, any type of trauma, this is, and, and that's what I think is most important of the work that you're doing is, you know, you've taken action, you haven't, um, and you've literally, you know, led by example, because even when I read about you, I was, you know, uh, I could feel it. I could feel the sense of, I could feel the encouragement. I can feel the empowerment. Um, and, and that's what more victims, um, to, cause again, I, I always say, you know, I'm not, I'm no longer a victim. I'm a survivor. Uh, I'm a survivor. So it, it, like, how can, um, you know, how did, how did you even begin that process? The moment I was let go I, and I was free physically speaking, um, but still captive mentally. I, I, the, I decided what I would do was simply pretend it didn't happen. That was the best I had is just pretend it didn't happen even to myself. Anytime the thought would come up, I'm like, no, 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 no. But it, you know, that old saying, what you resist persists. It was, my mind was filled with it. And so I, 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 talked to my mother and I didn't tell anybody for far longer than a decade, but I spoke to my mom and said, I'm depressed. I'm depressed. Now I had never been that way before. So it was a marked change, but I just kept saying it. And she said, you know, given I was a teenager, do you mean bored? And I was like, no, I mean, bona fide in horror, depressed. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And she said, well, not knowing what, and I wouldn't talk to her about anything, but she, she just trying to come up with something said, well, what if you found somebody to help, to serve, to provide something for you could get out of your own world. And I thought I am young, have no future. And I'm screwed up in the head who, who could possibly be worse. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, old have no future and screwed up in the head. And so I started volunteering at old age homes of all kind, board and care facilities, residential facility. But I, I spent over a decade doing that. And I'm talking like for a while, every single day, because the voice between my ears, that internal dialogue was screaming so loud that I just needed a reprieve from that. And I don't know if you've noticed, and I say this with no disrespect, but a lot of times old people talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes that's what you need is for somebody else to just do all the talking. And, and they just, it was like, they were talking so loud. I couldn't possibly hear the, the original dialogue. And what I recognize, this is a long time ago. And there were a lot of Holocaust survivors. I was volunteering at, 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 in Los Angeles and there were a ton of them. And I volunteered for Jewish Elder Care Corps, it was called. And there were a lot of Holocaust survivors. And I could see that some understandably had very difficult lives. They were bitter, understandably. Nobody could argue with that. But there were others who had done beautifully, who had risen, who had forgiven or something. I couldn't tell what was different, but they were dramatically different and they'd endured the same thing. And I realized I'm not the only one 
who has gone through something unimaginable, something I didn't choose and don't, didn't want. And so I started getting fascinated by people who had also done those things. And life then gave me Holocaust survivors and war vets, tons of them in these homes. And so I started getting fascinated by their stories and interviewing them, which they loved because somebody finally cared. Somebody finally listened. But I I interviewed them and just talked to them. And I started then codifying what worked versus what didn't, plus what I was finding that gave me a sense of presence and potency and power. And I was codifying the journey and I eventually turned it into an educational framework, Mm -hmm. which I taught. But simultaneously, I was, I started going, I, I, I heard this spiritual tenet, which said, go through the open door. And I didn't know what that meant, but I said, I'm, I'm deciding what that means is whatever anybody recommends I'll do. If somebody told me about a book, I went. A therapist, done. Uh, personal development seminars, all righty then. And I went to some and I took the entire curriculum and everything they had to offer. And I was like, uh, I feel good when I'm here and not so good when I'm not. What else do you got? Yeah. <laughs> and they said, well, you can train to lead them. And so I did because I thought then I would be like the author of, of the education, if you will. And I started working with and training hundreds and then thousands and then ultimately hundreds of thousands of people. But, and then I started just teaching my own educational framework, but there's something about, there's a ton of resources out there mm-hmm. to answer your question, whether it, you don't have to go about it, go about it the slow way I did, you know, interviewing people and I've got to reverse engineer this and codify what works and doesn't, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You, I, you know, I've written books on it. A million people have written books on it. There's so many resources out there. Just find something. And if one doesn't work, it's not you, it's it. Move it, put it aside and move on to the next one. There are so many, there's a resource for everybody. It's like that old saying, there's a pot, a, a lid for every pot. Absolutely. That, that's the case here. But what's interesting, I found that similar to your story is I started ultimately speaking and finally telling my story years and years and years later. But whenever I do, invariably, a crowd will come up to me after I speak. And in that crowd, I'll tell you at least a third of them, at least, will say, I've never told anybody this, but, and then fill in the blanks. I mean, the, the, the statistics, to come back to our previous conversation, are staggering. If you look at, you know, some of the real credible sources like Rain talks about this, R-A-I-N-N. Um, uh, and they talk about the, the numbers. And if you, if you really come to terms with them, they're staggering. But what I've found anecdotally from speaking again to hundreds of thousands of people now, the, those numbers are nowhere near accurate. If people are telling me I've never told this. Yeah, and I used to think something was wrong with me because I never told. And then certain people close to me, well, why wouldn't you tell? Hell, I couldn't even admit to myself. I'm not going to confide in anybody else. The only way I could figure out to live was to not talk about it. It's a common theme, but don't suffer in silence. There's help. Uh, Dr. Phil interviewed me recently and he, uh, it's airing uh, September 3rd. And, and one of the things he said when I told him about how I held it in for so long, he said, monsters live in the dark. And he's 100% right. When we hold our story inside, it erodes us. The human psyche is not built for that, to bear that kind of trauma alone. We're social beings. As you can see how difficult quarantine has been for people. You know, no matter on which end of the spectrum they fall, we're social beings. We're not meant to be just alone all the time. We're equally not meant to bear the weight of trauma alone. It's too much for a being to bear. Get help. And it's it's fascinating that, um, you know, because I, these stories, obviously, I'm always, you know, like I'm always... (laughs) I, I jokingly said this to someone, you know, this isn't a topic that 
you grab coffee over, uh, you know, any kind of day. Like nobody tells you, let's go talk about abuse right now. Like nobody, yeah. nobody is going to um, call you for a coffee date or to go out to dinner for something like this. However, whenever I am in, you know, I, I have the opportunity to do so is because I've made it like a ministry in a sense that whenever there is an opportunity to do so, I will bring it up and I will speak and bring light to it because I know how many times um, you know, over, I, there was like a period in my youth where maybe ha if I had heard one person just say, you know, this has happened to me too, yes. my trajectory, at, at, at least at the trajectory of self-destructive behavior, because there was a period of that, um, wouldn't have been as long or wouldn't have been as severe. Um, and I could have prevented, you know, alcoholism. Um, I've, I've spoken about this before in other episodes, you know, it was a period where I was you know, drinking myself to oblivion. And it was just literally praying to, praying to God, you know, let me not wake up tomorrow morning. Um, and it's unfathomable to me how, thinking back to that time in my life, how I'm still walking today, because quite frankly, I could have probably been dead many times over. Um, but, you know, that's where my spirituality kicked in, right? And um, there was always like this slither of hope or this slither of, uh, of, of just, you know, um, the quote that has kept me always is what has happened to you has happened for you. And I've, <laughs> Amen. I've, I've sat on that mantra for, you know, like I've, because there were days where I was like, Oh my God, why am I here? Why am I doing this? What, what's, you know, um, and it's definitely for something bigger than any of us. And, um, just as you said, there is something out there for everyone. However, um, the, the situation, the experience thus gets so much bigger in our head and it is very difficult. I mean, I have had, um, people, you know, private message because just, just as you, you know, I've been asked to speak over the years, there's always one or two or three people that will come over after and say, um, you know, this happened to me too. I've never shared it with anybody. Thank you so much for sharing your story, uh, et, cetera, et cetera. I even had family members that after I had read, you know, either a post or my book, they'll say, well, you know, me too. And I'll sit there and I'm like, you couldn't have just thrown me a bone. <laughs> you know, when I, you couldn't have just, you know, but I also understood that they were dealing with their own, uh, pain, their own struggles, and the suffering in silence, which is what you're speaking to, um, is, is really, it saddens me because I know that when, I, and you know, I, I think I still have moments where uh, I have to talk myself up, right? I don't know if you've encountered those moments where you're still kind of like, you know, <laughs> you know, I may have made it this far, but I still have to, you know, um, and I use, you know, the words of others, um, such as yours, to uplift me and keep me moving. Um, when you talk about the statistics and you talk about the numbers, um, we, because uh, we mentioned the campaign and I'm gonna let Jen talk a little bit about, um, because it's not just sexual assault. You, you, were, you were trafficked basically, which is something that um, it is, it, it, it is, and again, you know, it's uncomfortable to talk about just as, sexual assault is, just domestic violence is, just like any kind of trauma is. But this is something that's happening every single day, not just here in our country, uh, but all over the world. Um, can you talk a little bit more, um, if you could, about um, the statistics? And then, Jen, I'm going to let you jump in um, with regards to what we're doing, because um, it makes, um, it all goes together with this. Cheryl. <laughs> Um, you know, there was never justice served in my, in, in my personal experience, but when I did, when I, when I did speak to law enforcement, they all said, yeah, that was what it was a sex trafficking or attempt what? gone wrong or a handoff that didn't happen or something. So, um, it, it's definitely, you know, it, it definitely was, I, I mean, I, there's no way to know, you know, the, the justice was never served. I, you know, I don't know whatever became of them, but it's, if you look at, you know, I, I brought up, I happen to bring up rain because it's a very credible source, but they say every 73 seconds, 
somebody in this country is sexually assaulted. I mean, so in the amount of time we're talking, what will, will somewhere, you know, 30, 40 people, how, what, what happens to these people? And we all know hurt people hurt people. So at, at what point do we intervene and create something else? And I think ultimately it comes down each one of us is, is how I look at it for myself is this, I'm, it's incumbent upon me to stop this cycle here. And the way to do that is to live a great life. You know, the old saying, living well is the best revenge. And what I mean by that is be happy, be whole. Don't resent because resentment ties me to them. And I don't want to be tied to those sons of guns anymore. I want nothing to do with them. And now I can sever the, t- the, the, the cord and any connection between us is forgive, which seems implausible. And for years I was like, hell no, I don't condone what they did. But I realized the only person who was in chains was me. It's not about condoning and it's not about setting them free. It's about setting me free. Of course. Which is why I had to do it finally. But it it's a whole different life now. But I'm Jennifer, I'm so interested to hear what <laughs> you have to say about all of it. But yeah, yeah, it's actually um I guess pretty perfect timing that you know we have you on. Luckily, thank you for being here as a guest right now. Um one of our initiatives is called Be Human. Um and it's just something at Bella that we thought, you know, Vanessa's always been really great about spearheading any way to give back and give a voice to to people who need it and to kind of shine a light on organizations that are really doing great things. Um, so when we started this, you know, last month we were honoring pride in the LGBTQ community. Um, I've been doing a lot more research on lately. It is in the public eye a little bit more right now, and it is kind of brought to light a little bit more right now, which is great. Um, not great, but it's good that people are talking about it, um, is child trafficking. And it just, I think when I started, you know, reading about it, it struck a chord with me and it just, it's, you read things and you're like, this can't be happening. This can't be real. Um, and, and funny enough, I was just, I was with family over the weekend, um, and my cousin is a, a pediatric nurse um, in D.C. And I mean, some of the stories that she tells me about these children and, and how they come in and the state that they're in when they get to her is like, it's baffling. Um, so, you know, I decided I really think that we should, you know, continue talking about child trafficking. The fact that it's, that it is so uh, relevant right now and people are finally talking about it, I feel like we need to keep with that momentum um, so that's, you know, that's going to be our new initiative moving forward is, is just trying to help, you know, whether it's sharing voices like yours and stories, um, but credible resources like you talked about, because unfortunately right now there's a lot of resources out there that aren't credible. And then you worry that you're teetering that line between, you know, is this true? Is it false? Is it, as Vanessa says, sometimes I can go down the rabbit hole and I get a little crazy with my, with my researching and my information. Um, but Which, you know, we want to, we do we are passionate about something and bringing light and also trying to also, and, you know, enroll other people into what it is that we're trying to bring attention to. But this just reminded me, Jen, of the task force, um, with the group on Staten Island, um, with the woman that we've been in communications with, she, uh, the pediatrician that you mentioned, and she's only one of 30 in the entire United States. Um, no, I'm sorry, one in 300, that's the correct number, one in 300 of pediatricians who are trained to detect child abuse. And I was flabbergasted by that number because I can, how many, how, like, how big is the, the population in the United States? And then you have only 300 doctors who are, who are trained to do this. It's really, it's really, um, mind blowing to me. And um, I remember having, you know, conversations, especially when I moved here to New Jersey, and I was like, really, uh, I was like a mom, a mother hen, I have two children, and um, people would make fun of me, you know, about how I would hover, and I would protect, and how I would, 
um, literally be with my kids, you know, bring them wherever I had to be. And if it was a work thing and I couldn't get a, ba a trustworthy babysitter, they'd be there with me. And I'd be like, guess what? I was assaulted at five years old. Don't fucking care. And I'm sorry, you can curse on this, on this podcast, Gerald. <laughs> uh, like, Don't care. Uh, you think I'm crazy for showing up with my kid, my child's security, his safety, their safety is the most important thing right now. And even after, you know, in a, in an industry where that was always frowned upon, you know, showing up with your kids to work or whatever, like I no longer care uh, about the optics. My concern is my children's safety. And, yeah. and that I don't, and I don't apologize for that whatsoever. Um, so, and it's not to say that parents who don't move like I do are bad or, you know, better or worse parents. It's just, we all do what we need to do to keep our children safe. And, you know, 9.9 .9 times out of 10, um, these abuses and these um, situations are happening with people that kids know. Uh, they're in their circle. Uh, for me, it was a neighbor. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it really is, um, I mean, these are the people, they look like they look like your doctor, they look like your teacher, they look like your friend, they look, they look like, you know, regular, normal people that you encounter on a daily basis. So we have to just be extremely vigilant. Um, I know that I just am, my husband thinks I'm crazy sometimes, but you know. <laughs> no, sure. There's so many stories that I, I mean, I could go on forever talking about it, so I won't, but um, just so many of the stories that I heard who, you know, my, my grandmother, you know, sold me into trafficking because she couldn't pay the bills and, and I could, and I'm, and I'm, and it baffles me, not just the ages, which I know you touched on age. I mean, 18, yes, you are a hundred percent still a child. And I, I can't imagine but I mean, I hear stories about infants and it's just, it, it blows my mind. Um, so, you know, you coming on and sharing is just, it's really amazing. So thank you. I appreciate it. But. Absolutely. You know, it's such an amazing about it of all the, all the so-called taboo subjects, mental health, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, equality gay marriage, all the things that have caused any change. We had to talk about things that people were like, oh, you don't talk about things like that. Hell no. It all, everything in the scope of, of, of being human. Yeah. We only will cause any change, cause any difference to be made about that which we can address. And if it's uncomfortable, oh, well. It's a hell of a lot uncomfortable, a hell of a lot more comfortable than it is to have to deal with something after the fact. It's way more easy to deal with something proactively than it is after the damage has been done. I'm just, I acknowledge you both for, for taking this on. It's just, it's never easy to take on something that people are like, ooh, well, you know, and you know what's funny is that you <laughs> and the other end sometimes and it's just because it's that discomfort that people don't really want to deal with and um as jen knows as my team knows it's like i ain't nobody got time for that like i at the end of the day my goal is to bring light to spread light to be kind to be human, um, it's literally why we call, you know, why I picked the name of the campaign to be, be human, because we all, we mess up, we um, can fix it, we love, we, we, um, you know, share joy, pain, and that's the beauty of humanity, right, that we have all of these different facets, but in, in a topic such as this, which is extremely uncomfortable, yet as uncomfortable as you as it is like just like you said it is happening it is happening and it's happening by adults who literally do not see a child as a child and they see them as um something else uh and <laughs> it, it it is be disturbing isn't really the word it's sick um it is um, it is a form of violence. It is a form of aggression. It is a, it, it is 1000% a crime and we need to, 
um, talk about it more. And if it means, you know, talking about it more to make, you know, because again, these people are in our neighborhoods, they are in our office buildings, they are in our communities, um, to eventually like push them out or and bring them to the light so that this doesn't happen. Um, well, and I'm curious too, um, just your opinion, Cheryl, since we're on the topic, um, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned all these other, you know, huge reforms and things that, you know, I mean, people talk about pride and Black Lives Matter and all these movements and it's done amazing things. Um, and sometimes when I, when I talk to people about, you know, human trafficking, child trafficking, you know, and I, I share some of the things just that I've learned um, in the short amount of time that I have been researching it, people are, are kind of shocked that it's, that it's happening and that it's happening in the um, manner that it is, how, how relevant it is in the United States, right under our noses. And I feel like people aren't talking about it. And I'm curious, I mean, is it because it is so horrific and so maybe hard to talk about that people want to shut it out? Like, no, that, that can't be happening. I mean, what do you think? Why aren't we talking about it more? Well, until, you know, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to give people the benefit of the doubt. So, you know, one, sometimes things are hard to talk about and it's easier just to ignore them. But until we witness something horrific, like Matthew Shepard, um, if you recall, killed and left, I don't need to go in again to all the gory details, but for being gay, until you hear about trans people suffering unthinkable crimes and murder and, and then George Floyd and things like this, until some horrific act happens, it oftentimes doesn't cause a tipping point in human awareness where we go enough there we cannot have silence any longer but it takes brave souls such as the two of you to say fuck it silence cannot be the answer i know it's uncomfortable i know it's uncomfortable to discuss but again it's there's nothing more discomforting than the to know that your friends and family members are quite somebody you know is suffering there's a stat that again i keep quoting rain and again if anybody doesn't know them it's rape abuse incest and something network what's the other end for uh, rape abuse incest national network excuse me so um but it's they're a real uh, credible source in this and if you if you hear some of the statistics like the one i was talking about earlier and you think that they say something like, and forgive me if I'm misquoting, but like one in three people will experience sexual violence in their lifetime. If nobody you know is talking to you about having experienced sexual violence, they're not comfortable talking to you about that. Right. Now, that sounds like a shitty thing for me to say. But if that's the case, maybe it's time we go, wow, just like any of these other uncomfortable conversations, maybe I'm part of the problem. Not that I'm out there doing reprehensible acts, mm -hmm. but if I'm not making it safe for survivors and victims and whatever to come to me, then I've got to either like black and white. There's a, there's a division and there's no gray area. I'm either part of the solution or part of the problem. And I know even saying that is just like, people might be, you know, just no. And listen, off, but I, I, I'm, I'm Googling here, um, just the stats from rain, cause this is, um, very important. And, and Jen, maybe we could also include some of these statistics, um, in, in the, in the information that we share, because, um, I don't think pe people think it only affects like one demographic, like it's either only kids or, <laughs> no. and it literally, and this is actually staggering. You have 80,000 um, since 19, in, it says, how often does sexual uh, assault occur in the United States? Inmates, 80,600 80, inmates a year are sexually assaulted in some way. And these are people who are in prison for the love of God. Like, I, I, like, like think about it in, that, in, that, in those terms. Children, 60,000 children. The general public, 433,648 Americans 12 and older were sexually assaulted or raped. 18,900 experienced unwanted sexual con contact in the military. Vanessa uh, Guillen, uh, just a few uh, weeks ago, uh, 
who was um, in Fort Hood, Texas, who was found dead, who had um, complained about misconduct from one of her, uh, you know, troop members or whatever, was found dead. And literally, this is a woman who was literally just, um, you know, trying to keep herself from being sexually assaulted, ended up dead. So um, this is really, you mentioned the 73 seconds, every, every 73 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. One out of every six women American in America has been a victim or an attempted or complete rape in her lifetime. About 3% of American men or one in 33 have experienced an attempted or, com or completed rape in their lifetime. Like these are not, um, these are like serious numbers. Like they're not, they're, they're atrocious because they're they're that grave. It's like, it's something as easy as, you know, getting stung by a bee I, or, or maybe even less. Like you have, you have the probability of getting sexual assaulted more than you do by get, of getting stung by a bee. Like that's kind of crazy to even think about it in those terms. Is and, my and, and those numbers, one out of every six has been the, uh, has been a victim in attempted rape or completed rape. Yes. And again, the numbers for completed rape are way higher than attempted rape. If you look at the numbers, um, but that's just rape. What about sexual assault, which is not even, we're not even talking about that. Not again, When I and Vanessa and, and, and me, that's what I, I'm, I'm referring to. If you and I didn't tell people forever, yeah. what, how accurate are these numbers? And again, nothing derogatory to rain. They're a massive resource, but it's just how accurate are the numbers when most people don't talk about it as a survival mechanism, as a way to simply cope and make it through? Now, I want to, um, at some point before we complete, there's something I want to share that gave me oh. some real hope mm -hmm. um, and just a place to stand that I think you may appreciate. Is there anything else you want to talk on about on this topic first, or may I share this no, I'd thing? I'd love for you to share. Now. So after, after I was free, I decided screw it. I'm going to become a model anyway. I mean, I went through all of that. Amazing. I'm going to do it. Gorgeous, by the way, you're beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> I, and I, you know, I ended up being the worldwide Coca-Cola girl and I was in all major magazines and did lots of commercials and stuff and did it for a long time. But the point is I, I was still locked in my own head. I was still captive to my mind at the very beginning. And I, I went, I traveled the world, you know, like you have to as a model. And one of the places they sent me was Japan. And I used to, I became like a super loner. I would just have a book and I would hold it up in front of my face and nobody would bother me. And I found being a model, like, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like me before kids. Like nobody would attempt to talk to me. And the cool thing was, I mean, weird, but cool. But in the modeling days, it was like, nobody wanted to hear from me anyway. You were just basically a, a flesh mannequin with flesh. So I was like, yes, awesome. I found my people. Nobody ever will bother me or talk to me about anything. And we're all from around the world. And most people don't speak the same language. So you're just like, <laughs> or so. <laughs> Anywho, and it was like, and most of the men were gay, and I was like, yes, I, it was just the mo most perfect place. I'm in love with all of them, and yes, they didn't want a damn thing from me. So I got to Japan, and I was just a loner, and I would spend, unless I was actually in a shoot, I would spend my time in my agency. They had a conference room when nobody ever was there, except the grandparents of my agent. There's this tradition in Japan where they reveal their, revere, excuse me, their elders. And so they would have them there in case there were any tough decisions that needed to be made, made during the day, they could consult Oba and Oji, grandma and grandpa. And so they would turn to them and ask them anything important, but they just, you know, they were retired and they just 
spent their time doing whatever they did. And I'd see them once in a while, but they never really talked. And it was like, they were more of my people. But I was in the conference room one day and I was reading a book and plotting my revenge against these men from France. And I was rubbing my fingers along. Uh, there was this wooden conference table that was wide at one end, like the tree must have been, and then narrow at the other end. I'd never seen anything like it. It was definitely beautiful, but it was they left all the eyes of the wood in rather than taking them out in places that were like branches. They, they polished it enough so that it wouldn't give you splinters, but they left all these things in. It was really odd. And I was tracing my fingers over one of these divots and the, and the grandmother comes in and says, Oh, Wabi Sabi. And I looked up and I was like thinking, is it lunch already? Like, I, I don't know if she meant like wasabi or I don't know, but and I go, wasabi? And she goes, no, no, wabi-sabi. And the, the grandmother and grandfather took turns telling me about wabi-sabi, this Japanese principle. They said, it's the most important of all Japanese principles. And what the principle of wabi-sabi states is that the beauty of any object, and they were referring to this wooden table at the time, this, the beauty of any object lies in its flaws. And so intentionally, they'll leave in the, the natural flaws, damaged parts, the things where it's ruined. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll exonerate a crack in something and, 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 and patch it up with gold. Um, and that's called kintsugi, but it, it all stems out of wabi-sabi, which is you, the, the, what's wrong with something is what's right with something. The flaws make something perfect. And something can only be seen to be beautiful, they would say, to a correlate degree to which it embodies imperfection is how much perfection it could have, like 180 degrees apart on the scale. And they just blew my mind. I thought, I wondered, I prayed, could this apply to people? Because I hadn't told anybody at the time. And I felt I, one of the reasons I couldn't tell in, or in, in addition to just, I wouldn't be able to survive if I had to speak about it was that people would think that I was filthy and used and damaged and ruined. And I just, and stupid, just how, who would do, who would go with those men? How stupid and gullible must I be? And so I thought the only way to ever have any relationships with people would be if they never knew those horrible things about me. But what I've learned over the years, things that we think are wrong with us, but those are the, actually the things that make us perfect, certainly according to Wabi Sabi, right? It's you are magnificent, and it's not the beautiful, polished up, presentable to the world things that make you magnificent. It's the other stuff. It's those things that we feel ashamed about, that we want to hide, that we hope nobody will find out about us. I mean, Vanessa, the moment you said, I was sexually assaulted at five, it's like, <gasps> my heart cracked open. Suddenly we're bonded because you've chosen so vulner vulnerably to share your your heart, your journey, your story. And Jennifer, the moment that you shared, you know, I'm, I'm delving into this, I'm reading, I'm obsessing. Who can't relate to getting excited about something and obsessing and going down a rabbit hole? Everybody can, but suddenly you share how it truly is for you, which is an act of courage and generosity in a world that is driven by selfies that look perfect and are airbrushed. And the moment we actually share what's going on, we share that wabi-sabi, we're forever bonded. We're set free. And so are the others to actually be human. You could actually make me cry. I love that. I'm holding it in right now. I'm like, don't cry right now. Because um, as you're speaking, I'm reminding of the quote by Ruth, uh, the wound is where the light enters. And um, that is truly, um, if we could do anything, it's actually my life's work, uh, especially having taken on um, a media company, because 
in case you didn't know, I, 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 Bella has been around for a very long time, but I took it over uh, last year from the previous owners. And my intention and my mission has always bring, uh, been to bring light and in an industry that can be very superficial uh, to have these tidbits of humanity because, you know, to get, I mean, you can tell when you mentioned the word hope, uh, our last issue, our, our current issue is called the hope issue. And it's actually my children and me who are, uh, what it looks like to be in a biracial, uh, relationship because that what, that's what love is. That's what love looks like. Um, and, and quite frankly, when we can see each other, and I'm I, I'm trying to I'm trying to end this on the up and up, but I'm getting really emotional because this is truly what um, life is to um, show each other, you know, how we truly are. Allow ourselves to show, you know, the warts and all, because um, that's what makes us human, and that's um, how we can really genuinely get along with each other. Because you know what I thought was broken, flawed in me, um, just so happens that's something that is in you also. And, um, you know, and we can always learn and grow from each other, uh, having those shared experiences. So, whew, I didn't know I was going to need a tissue box at the end of this podcast. Uh, but <clears throat> this is why we keep alcohol in the office. I'm kidding. <laughs> half kidding. She's half kidding. Uh, we're coffee drinkers in this office, uh, but the reality is that, um, quite frankly, extremely grateful for you sharing your heart, your journey with us, uh, because I hope that if, you know, anyone who is listening can take a little bit of uh, so much that was shared with us today. So um, I'm truly grateful because just, you know, I'm, I'm humbled when I'm, I'm called courageous or brave because all I'm trying to I'm trying to do my part as best as I possibly can and it is with a lot of fear uh and you know with a lot of um telling Jen you're gonna think I'm crazy or people are gonna think I'm crazy but it's okay <laughs> we gotta keep doing it we gotta keep doing it we gotta keep pushing forward so um because that at the end goal is um much bigger than you know what the perception or you know how cute the picture can look. It's really about bringing about change um, and helping people see themselves um, in everything that we do. So with that, where can people connect with you, Cheryl? You have a lot of um, incredible resources that people can um, source from from you. If you could share, you know, how to find you, where, where to get your book, that would be amazing. Absolutely. Everything, uh, I, I, CherylHunter.com is my website. And I, my, my, my mission, it's similar. It's so funny, Vanessa, similar to you. I'm all about the light workers and, you know, people with a story, I'm, I'm helping people with a, with some mission on their heart, some story, get it out to the world. And so all that resources for that, my book, everything can be found on my, on my website, CherylHunter.com, including links to my social and all. Yeah.